well, it's a great joy for me to be able to invite you to turn to 1 Peter this morning as we continue our journey together through this, this wonderful letter. I hope you know, uh, I, I hope that you can say with me that this is absolutely thrilling. It is thrilling for me to study these texts and then to bring the, the fruit of that study to you. Thank you so much for allowing me the privilege of doing that, for, for opening the way for me to study, to, to, to glean from God's Word, and then to be able to bring it to you each week. Uh, what a, an incredible joy that is. Just, just exhilarating for me to watch the Lord work as we learn together, and, and God bringing us to maturity, and God bringing us to unity uh, as He does through His Word. In many ways, I feel like a tour guide. I I just have the privilege of pointing some things out to you. And then after you take it in, I can say, well, did you catch this? You know, a couple of years ago, we were in Israel and we had a tour guide and he would allow us, he, he would show us a site and allow us to, to take in that site. And then after we've taken it in, then he'd point some things out to, to, you, to us that we didn't know before. And it was just a wonderful experience. And, and, and I hope that that's what this, this, this going through the book of First Peter is like for you, just taking some things in, and then I have the privilege and, and the responsibility, but the joyful responsibility of being able to expound some of the truths that are there before us. And that's just, kind of, I feel like a tour guide going through this. And I, I didn't think it could get any better. We've been in First Peter now for the better part of, what is it, four, almost five months now. We've been going through the book of First Peter, and I just thought it can't get any more beautiful, any better than, than this, until we come to what is now my favorite text in the Bible, First Peter chapter 1, verse 22, through First Peter chapter 2, verse 3. This is one of the unfortunate chapter divisions in the Bible. You need to know that the chapters were not inspired, verse numbers not inspired, uh, what we have here is really a section from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3 is a section, and we, it should all be considered together. Now, we're not going to get that far today, but I just want you to see it as, as what I'm going to do is read it, and we'll kind of all look at it together, and then I'll try to point some things out to you, okay? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, we have tasted. There have been moments in our lives, O oh Lord, when we have tasted, so tasted your goodness. And that causes us to long for more. 
So make the book live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want, one of the things that I like to do when coming to a text of Scripture is I try to identify the verbs, the main verbs, so that I have a, an idea of the main theme. I want to have a picture. I want to have a good grasp on what this text is all about. And usually... The verbs are quite apparent. The main verbs are quite apparent in the English language. Sometimes you may have to go to the original language to help clean it up a little bit. But in this case, I want you to notice this morning that there are two main verbs in this text that I've just read to you. Two main thoughts in this text. Now, those thoughts are modified by participles, which may be a little confusing because participles sometimes look like they're verbs, but they're just verbal adjectives. But there are two main verbs in this section. The first is in verse 22 of chapter 1. And you see it. Love one another earnestly. Now the second verb is in chapter 2 verse 2. And that is long for the pure spiritual milk. So if I were just doing an outline today. uh, If I were just doing this whole section. uh, I would just say there are two Main points to the text. One, love one another. Two, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, we're only going to get through first section, and I, and I actually, I hope that we actually get through the first section uh, today. As we are working through First Peter, and especially in the first chapter, we have seen Peter's emphasis in verse 5 on faith. Then we found his emphasis in verse 13 on hope. And so it's only fitting that in verse 22 we find him emphasizing what? Love, faith, hope, and love. The the, the Christian triad, right? Love is perhaps the most important recurring message in 1 Peter. You have it right here in verse 22 of chapter 1. In verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, love the brotherhood. In verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And then in verse 8 of chapter chapter 4, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. In every, uh, at least in four out of five chapters, he's addressing this issue of love. It is an important recurring theme in the book of 1 Peter. And so what I want to do today is just focus in on that main verb in this first section, verses 22 through 25, the first main verb, the first imperative, love one another earnestly. And what I want to do is just in those verses, chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, is I want to point out three features of the text. Just just like a tour guide, I'm going to say, well, look at this, and then look at this, and then look at this. First feature I'm going to show you is a command, Okay. Now, the command isn't the very first thing that he says, but it's, it's one of the very first things. And in, in chapter 21, verse 22, um, B, we see love one another earnestly. So the command. Then we're going to look at the capacity. And that's, we go back up to the beginning of verse 22, where it says, having purified yourselves. Or, um, 
As he says here, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. That's what I'll call the capacity. And then if time permits, we'll look in verses 23 through 25 and we'll see the cause. But just remember those three words, command, capacity, and cause. And I think that will help us to work through this text. And Lord willing, you'll be as amazed and as wowed as I am today. I I have a bit of trepidation because I don't know that I can put the words together to be able to explain to you the glories of this text. And I hope that the Lord would allow us to do that. So first of all, look at the command. First thing that we observe here is, as I said, the main verb. That's the focus. That's the theme of this text. That's what this text is all about. Many things we can say about this text. Many things we could observe about this text, but the one thing, the main thing, is the command or the imperative. It is imperative for Peter's readers to love one another earnestly. In other words, this isn't a suggestion. It's not a nice option. You know, if if, if you decided to do this, this is a flat out command. Now, I'm pretty sure that you've heard this command before. Love one another earnestly earnestly. I'm pretty sure that it's very, very familiar to you. In fact, it's not something only that Peter says, but the New Testament is filled. This is the primary message that Jesus pressed on his disciples as he was preparing to face the cross. John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another. John 15, 17, I command you that you will love one another. That was, that was what Jesus pressed on his disciples. And then the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, gave us words like this. Love one another with brotherly affection. Owe no one anything but love. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And I could keep going on. It's a message of the New Testament. Jesus pressed it on his disciples. The apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote to the churches. The writer of the letter of Hebrews spoke of it to stir one another up to what? Love and good works. Peter emphasizes it repeatedly in his first letter. And then the apostle John, he got it. 1 John 3, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Beloved, let us love one another. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. He even got it in the action on in 2 John. He says, I ask you, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we, what is it? Love one another. I mean, this message is all throughout the New Testament. And one of the dangers of, is this, that because it's so repeated and because it's so known that you could just switch off this morning and say, eh, I already know that. I already know that. I've heard that before. 
Listen, this is very, very important. It's not something we can just take or leave. It is a command. It is an imperative. And I want us to just dwell on this command for a little bit. I want us to consider, first of all, what this command is. What this command is. Um, It's an interesting word. You've heard the Greek word before. Uh, Agape, agape, right? An interesting word. It's, It's just translated, of course, love. But I was thinking... That word love doesn't do, the the English word love doesn't do this this word justice. I mean, the English word love is so broad. I can use it when I'm speaking about tacos or my wife. I love tacos. I love my wife. Right? It doesn't really seem to get the, the gist of what this word is all about. This word is very specific, however. It is very, very pointed. It is not the love of emotion. It is not the love of feeling. It is the love of will. You've heard it referred to before as unconditional, right? Unconditional love. The unconditional love of the will. Listen, the strongest love is the love of the will. I like what one commentator said this. He said, It is the love of full intelligence and understanding coupled with corresponding purpose. It is a love of rational goodwill that desires the highest good for the one loved, even at the expense of self. Now, I was always taught growing up in school that when you try to define something, you can't define something Using that word. So how would you define love? Or especially this word, agape. This is, this is, it is, it is cherishing another. It is an affectionate regard. I like this. I would define it as a willful direction toward another Set on their good no matter the cost to oneself. That's what this is. It is a willful direction to another that is intent on their good no matter the cost to oneself. Folks, it's not something we can just gloss over quickly. I want you to remember the context. Here's Peter writing to scattered, suffering saints. I mean, they've got targets on their back. They're being being hunted down. They're being targeted for their Christian faith. They're being mocked and scorned and ridiculed and reviled. And when the pressures like that start to be exerted against you, isn't it interesting how you start to get sort of prickly with one another? Think about that. That's what happens in your home, right? You start to... Stress, hardship, heartache, difficulty start coming and you, you start getting short with one another. You start getting, yeah, you, 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 you get this short fuse with one another. Imagine what that must have been like for the churches, for the Christians here in Asia Minor. And he is not calling them, that he is not calling them to move toward with a, a, in a willful direction toward one another 
dependent on their circumstances or dependent on their situations that they're finding themselves in. He's calling them to cherish each other in spite of these difficulties, in spite of these trials, in spite of these hardships. And it's not a fake, it's not a phony Trivial kind of thing. He says, in fact, he calls it sincere. Having purified yourself, your soul, for a sincere brotherly love. It's an unhypocritical. It's not something that is is forced or just comes as a result of one's duty. It's not forced, but it's rather genuine from the heart. He's not talking about grin and bear it. You know, just go up to somebody, hold your nose, and sort of do the, your duty. No, he's not talking about that. It's to be without hypocrisy, pretending to be something you're not. So you see what this command is? It's this, this willful direction toward one another, to another, in order to cherish them no matter the cost to you. But then I want to see not just what this command is, but who this command involves. You see it right there in the text, don't you? He says, he, he refers to brotherly love, for sincere brotherly love. And then he says, love what? One another. You should notice who it is that these believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are called to love. Called to love one another. It is a brotherly love, a familial love that's on his mind. He is referring, now listen to this, it's very important. He is referring to the love between believers. And listen, it is a mutual reciprocated kind or reciprocating kind of love. Not one-sided. It is a mutual reciprocal love between believers. Not the love of emotion or feeling, but the love of will. The love which humbly moves toward another with warm, affectionate regard. It moves toward another for the sake of cherishing another. And this is imperative, to love one another. It's love among and love between those within the fellowship of believers. That's what he's calling for. This kind of cherishing of fellow believers within a local church, within a local assembly that seeks the good of the other, even at the expense of sacrifice, even at the expense of pain to oneself. And I I just want to say this sort of as an aside, but I think it's a really important thought to be made here. We have, in the book of 1 Peter, we've been talking about some incredible truth. We have been talking about some of the deepest spiritual truths, spiritual doctrine in all of the Bible. Think about where we've been so far. We've considered the greatness of the foreordination of God in electing sinners to, 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 to save sinners. We've thought about the wonder of being born again. We've observed the resurrection of Christ granting us a hope that goes beyond this life. We've contemplate the one, contemplated the wondrous security of our salvation in Christ and, and considered the, the soon Coming of Christ, the blessed hope of every believer, the the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've even understood something about the fact 
that the grace of our salvation that we've experienced is not just Johnny-come-lately kind of doctrine, but is something that is rooted in prophetic Scripture, indeed in the eternal will of God from before the foundation of the earth. I'm talking mountaintop, mountainess, maybe I should say, Christian doctrine. Some of the deepest, highest, greatest truth that has ever been contemplated by the human mind. But do you know what often happens inexplicably to Christians when they, when they have that great mountainous doctrine? I, I can't even believe I'm going to say this, but what happens so often in a church, in a local congregation, listen, that's well taught, that knows the depths of Christian faith, you know what often happens? Those Christians often grow cold to one another. Can you believe it? They just grow cold to one another. I heard that this week. I, I uh, finally fully, praise the Lord, deleted Twitter. But before I did, I read, I read, now hold me accountable. I'm not going back like a dog to its own vomit, right? Uh, before I did, I read about somebody who said, that this was their testimony. They said, you know, we went to a, a doctrinally sound church. They, called, they said a, a more reformed church. They said, we heard good teaching, but nobody said a word to us. It was cold, dank, lifeless. And then she said, but I went to the local Pentecostal church where I heard essentially heresy and people loved me. That ought never be. Where you have the greatest doctrine, the deepest truths of the Christian faith, that ought to inflame our hearts. An informed mind should lead to an inflamed heart of just incredible love for one another. Uh, incredibly cherishing one another, moving toward one another. We're to love one another, to move toward one another, to cherish one another. That's the call of the local congregation. Now listen to this. The greatest and most effective testimony that we have is our love for one another. Did you listen to that? Did you hear that? The greatest and most effective testimony and witness that we have is our love for one another. Our seeking the genuine, truest good for another person, even at the cost of your own pain. This is absolutely counter to everything that this world knows and experiences today. This is something, and I hope to get to the point where I can show you, this is something that is peculiar to the children of God. You, you are, the King James Version in chapter 2 says, he, he, he sanctified or justified or saved his own peculiar people. You see, love is not something, this kind of love that he's talking about is not something that is generally found in the world. So much so that when it is witnessed, it really stands out. It make, makes people stand up and notice. Now the world may hate us as believers, the world may despise the church. The world may mock with their scornful words. But when they see this kind of self-surrendering love, they take notice. Jesus said, by this will all people know that you are followers of me 
even as you love one another. And we see this all the time. In just small, uh, almost throwaway ways here at this local fellowship. Maybe you might even consider them trivial things. People walk in here and there's just a sense. I had somebody say the other day, they, they've been here, I, I don't know if they're here today, but they've been here twice and they said, man, we just felt there was a sense of love, there was a sense of welcome, there was a sense of warmth. We felt like we belonged when we came here. It just gets noticed. And I think we can probably deepen that. This kind of self-sacrificing love. I told you before about the story. Brian Chappell told a story uh, that happened in his own hometown with the two boys that were playing on the sandbanks by the river. And they, they, the, uh, uh, one ran up. Um, they, they, they ran up on a large mound of sand. And unfortunately, the mound wasn't solid. And they began to sink. And when the boys didn't return home, the, the parents organized a search committee. And they went out. And, and they found uh, the younger boy unconscious, buried up to his chest in the sand. And as the rescue team began to dig away the sand from his chest, it got down below his stomach. He came to, he revived, and the, and the rescuers said, where's your brother? Where's your brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. That kind of self-sacrificing love in the church is what gets noticed in the world where we are that for one another. So what the command is, who the command involves. But then I want to ask you, how is this command implemented? How do we follow through? And it's really interesting what he says here. He says, we're to love one another. And then he says it this way, earnestly. Earnestly. And that word... Peter likes this word. He uses it again in chapter 4, verse 8, and we'll go back there in just a minute. But it's a word that means fervent. It's a word that comes to us actually from physiology, and it refers to stretching one's muscles to the limits. Think about a runner running, stretching forward with everything that he is to cross that finish line. Think of maybe you watch the Kentucky Derby, what is it, a week or two ago, and you see those horses going down, and you see their necks extended to cross the finish line. That's what it means, to to extend, stretch out yourself. It's used of Jesus in Luke 22, 44, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was praying what? fervently. And what happened? He sweat great drops of blood. That is to say he was extended to the furthest reaches of his humanity. When you cherish one another, when you cherish that brother or sister in Christ, you move toward them to seek their good, even if it involves your sacrifice. I'm not calling up saying that you give up your life. I'm not necessarily talking about that dying for someone else. Of course not that. But look with me at 1 John chapter 1. And I'll just give you a picture of what I'm talking about here. 1 John chapter 1. In verse 16. 1 John chapter 1 and verse... I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 3 verse 16. 1 John chapter 3 verse 16. You were looking for verse... 16 in chapter 1. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But, so, you ought to lay down your lives for your brothers. 
But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So it's, it's far more than just giving up your life. It's, it's opening up your heart. You say, but what does that look like? What is a fervent love? What does a love look like that's stretched out? For that, I want you to go back to 1 Peter, but this time to 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, that's going to be some time until we get to chapter 4, but I just want you to see this picture of love, of this, this cherishing, moving toward another. Look what he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know what a fervent love is? A fervent, a stretching kind of love is a forgiving love. A love that he says covers a multitude of sins. When, when have you covered the cost of genuine forgiveness for being wronged? Your husband, your wife wronged you. When have you covered the cost for that? Brother or sister in Christ wronged you. Maybe said something when, when have you covered the cost? And that, and that doesn't mean just saying, ah, water off a duck's back, water under the bridge, whatever you say. I'm talking about when you go to them and, and, and reconcile because you've already paid the cost. You've paid the price. That's stretching. That's stretching out your neck, as it were. A fervent love is a forgiving love. A fervent love is not only a, a, a forgiving love, but a fervent love is a hospitable love. You see what he says there in verse 9? Show hospitality to one another. But he doesn't just say show hospitality to one another. He says show hospitality without grumbling. You know what grumbling is? It's, it's, it's an, uh, an onomatopoetic word. It sounds like what it is. And it's the word that, that sounds like grumble, 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 grumble. You've had people into your home. You've opened your heart to people, your home to people before. And when they walk out the door, you're like, grumble, 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 grumble. Or as you're getting ready and you're vacuuming and you're making whatever you're making, you're grumbling. I'll tell you what a fervent, eager love is. is opening up your home and your heart to someone without grumbling, but with joy. Because you look at them as children of the Father. You look at them as brothers or sisters in Christ. That's a, that's a fervent love. A fervent love is a forgiving love. It is a hospitable love. Thirdly, it is a serving love. 
It is a love that takes the supernatural abilities that God has given you, the supernatural gifting that he's given you to serve Christ by serving his church, and applying it to others with incredible gladness of heart and joy and happiness, just serving one another. I get the privilege of of laying down my life for you. I get the joy of washing your feet. I get the joy of teaching. I get the joy of, of administrating, of serving in one way or another. That's the kind of love that is a stretching love. And listen, you hopefully you're already hearing and, you, and you're going, this doesn't sound like it's possible to do apart from the gathering of the church, apart from the local body. And if you were saying that, you would be right. We in America have become so individualized. We, especially us Christians, we come to church, we park in our parking spot, right? We sit in our seat. We don't, rarely, and, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, reprimanding. I, I'm just trying to, I'm, 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 I'm very happy. I'm not mad. Listen, but we come to church. I always have to say that because my wife's like, honey, don't get that this. I'm happy. See? <laughs> we come to church and we sit in our seats and we do our thing and we don't move toward one another unless they move toward us. And then they move toward us and we're thinking, Man, I wonder, they want to shake our hand. I wonder when the last time you washed your hand was or something crazy, right? It's this this fervent, stretching love that forgives and opens up your heart and your home and your life. How can you open up your home and your life when you won't even sit next to somebody? When you won't even talk to them, you know? it's, it's a serving kind of love that says, I'm going to reach down to the depths and I'm going to do all I can to serve you and do it happily and joyfully for the cause of the glory of Christ. And, that, and then that's the last note about fervent love. Fervent love is a God-glorifying love. It seeks the glory of God. It doesn't seek self. It doesn't do it in its own strength. So that says... Immediately, it says, you know, we, we, we just understand something of our humanity. We're not supermen. We're not superwomen. We're not super people. We're not super Christians. We can't do everything ourselves. But what we can do, we do for the glory of God and take no credit for self, no honor to self. This is a mutual thing within the church. It's, it's reciprocating. So you can't say, man, you, if you're sitting right there now, right now, and you're thinking, I hope those people at that church hear this because they need it. And you're not listening to it yourself. You have totally missed the boat. You've just missed it. Because this is a mutual kind of thing where we are sharing, we're moving toward another for the other's good and we bear the cost for the glory of God. If you're in Christ, 
You see, the basis for this kind of cherishing one another is not waiting for somebody else to, to get there. The basis for this is found in your relationship to your father. You, you've been born again. You've been purified. Right? If you're in Christ, if you've been born again, you have the life of the Father in you, and therefore it's not dependent on what someone else does or doesn't do. So move toward one another, friends. In your heart. In your mind. Be thinking about one Use Use your thoughts this week to be thinking about one another. Right? Move toward one another in your praying. Move toward one another in your forgiving. You're looking around and there are people in this building today or people down in Helder Hall and you say, that person wronged me. Well, tough. Then deal with it, right? I'm still happy. (laughs) Make, bear the cost and do it for the glory of God. Move toward one another forgiving. Move toward one another in serving. Let's cherish our brothers and sisters in Christ. And you might say, what's the big deal? Aren't you, you're making a mountain out of a molehill here, Joe. What's the big deal? Aren't there more, aren't there bigger things? Aren't there bigger fish to fry than this thing of love? Come on, you sound like a liberal. There, there aren't, aren't there things that are more important than this mutually reciprocated love within the local body of believers? And that question is really answered when we see how Peter continues the text. Because he goes from talking about the command to referring to what I call the capacity. The world, friends, is categorically, in no uncertain terms, an unloving place and people ruled by their own ignorant passions and self-desires. And the kind of love that Peter's talking about here is not a normal human attribute, but it is in fact a specially Christian quality. It's unique to Christians who are unique in the world. And this is one of the things that makes Christians stand out. What he says here, when he uses this participle, the, the first participle that modifies the main verb, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that word purified is a word that's really important because it sets the stage for the rest of the context. It's a word that means being set apart. Literally, it, it refers to being holy, to being more, morally pure. In other words, your capacity to love one another, and let me be clear, this is talking about your eager and fervent love for another. Your capacity to love another brother or sister in Christ is established by the purging of your soul from the moral stains of your sin in the past. And what this is all about is, if you listen to this and you look at the rest of the context, it sounds strangely a lot like priestly language, doesn't it? Like priests who get purified before their priestly service. And in this way, your priestly service to God, your act of worship to God is what? Your love for one another. The way you cherish another. 
And, and, and Peter says, you have purified your souls. Now, this is from the human perspective. We know we don't make purification. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus makes purification. You don't make it. But from a human perspective, you heard the gospel. You heard it, in fact, and you obeyed. That word obeyed means to, to hear, which leads you to, to subject yourself. And so from a human perspective, there was a moment in time you heard the gospel. You believed. You obeyed it. That's how the Bible speaks, by the way. It doesn't speak about asking Jesus into your heart. We need to stop using those terms. Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you submitted to the gospel? Repented of your sin, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are capacitated to serve him by virtue of having your past sins dismissed, purified. The stain of your sin is purified. You are now pure, a pure priest of God. You are so capacitated by what happened to your past and you are so capacitated by what is planned for your future. Because this happened, it happened for a sincere brotherly love. Unto, into. It introduced you into this new capacity. You didn't have it before. You used to walk in the ignorance of your former passions. But then you heard the gospel. And he made you a priest. This, this command, and I'm just trying to go quickly because I, I really want to finish this. This command is referred to in a way that he says you, you have a new capacity now to do this. That's from the human perspective. That's that first participle. There's a second participle that modifies the main verb, and that doesn't come until verse 23. Since or Having been born again. Having purified your souls, that's the human perspective. Having been born again is the divine perspective. Having been born again. This is just a thrilling word. It, it, it means to be begotten again. It means to be birthed again so that one becomes qualitatively new. It is used to refer to being born of God. J.I. Packer calls it the inner recreating of fallen human nature by the gracious sovereign action of the Holy Spirit. Grammatically, this is in the perfect tense, which suggests, at the very least, a past action with ongoing results. It's referring to a definite event that has already taken place with continuing effects to this day. Because you have been born again, this is the cause. What is the cause for you to obey this command? The cause is you have been born again. Because this birth has been affected by the imperishable seed. What? 
Yeah, this birth has been affected by the living and abiding word of God. And here's what he does. He traces the new birth, this spiritual rebirth, if you will, to the word of God. You get born again under the influence of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. You don't make it happen. You're not the cause. God is. It's not an issue of of will. It's not an issue of work. It's an issue of God applying his word to your spiritually dead heart and thereby sovereignly breathing life into you. James 1.18 says we're born again by the word of God. Now here's the point. Peter tells us that this kind of love for one another is a necessary product of being born again. And what I mean is this. This kind of love is a result of not just having a new life. This kind of love is a result of having a new father. What's the big deal, Joe, about this love, love for one another, love, love, love? What's the big deal? I'll tell you the big deal is love is a family trait. You image the family characteristics in this kind of love, in this kind of moving toward another. You see, we bear the family likeness in this kind of love. It's essential. Not just that you have a new life, but you have a new father and you look just like him. And that's why it's so important. But here's the great thing. You don't just look like him, but you become more and more like you bear more and more the family resemblance, the family traits, the family image, the family likeness. Now, what's all this purpose then of of verses 24 and 25? He said you've been born again by the word, the living and abiding word of God, living and abiding, living and abiding. Why? Why living and abiding? And then he reaches back to Isaiah 40, to the prophet Isaiah, and he pulls out this passage, all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What's this all about? Well, it's, it's a very important application. He says, you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. This is the divine perspective of our salvation. God is the one who works. How? He works by taking spiritually dead sinners and, listen, changing their heart and giving them a, a new heart to be able to respond in faith. And that's the event that we call regeneration or being born again through the gospel. This is affected by the word of God. God's word applied by the Holy Spirit, breathes life into spiritually dead people, thus taking children of dust and making them children of God, who are adopted into his family and giving the family traits. But why this passage, why this quote from Isaiah 40? Because in that passage, Isaiah was writing to those who had been taken captive by Babylon. The strongest, most powerful, greatest kingdom On the earth. And one of the ways that that strength was displayed in Babylon was through one of the ancient wonders of the world. Have you heard about the hanging gardens in Babylon? Displayed the opulence and the beauty and the ingenuity and the wisdom and the ability and the power of the Babylonian kingdom. And it was possible that those Israelites who have been taken captive 
would go to Babylon and see all of this might and all of this opulence and all of this wisdom and all of this power and think, how could it ever be that God, who had promised to return the captives after 70 years, how could it be possible that God would be able to keep his promise? And, it, and the promise was so important to the Hebrew, right? The promise was so important to the Jewish people because it goes all the way back to, to the Garden of Eden. It goes all the way back to God's purpose and God's plan and God's promise to provide the seed. The seed promise. And how could it be possible that he could follow through with his promise if we're here in Babylon? And Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flower falls. They would know that very well because they'd see these hanging gardens. And whatever you have hanging gardens, what do you have? You've got these beautiful flower blooms, these bluer, beautiful flower blossoms everywhere. But on the ground, you've got all these dead, fallen, rotting flower, what do you call them? Petals, blossoms, blooms, whatever. You've got dying grass And he says, that that which is a symbol of man's strength and might is a reminder of man's fragility, man's frailty, man's uh, uh, futility. Grass withers, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You were born again by the word of God. Tell me when will that life end? If the seed by which you have been born is an imperishable seed, when will that life end? And you can see there's lots of reasons for you to despair. You're here just like the, the captives in Israel. You're in this world. You're an alien. You're an exile. You're scattered. You're suffering just like the Israelites under the Babylonian captivity. You're an alien. You're an exile. And and all the things going on in this world, and you can seem to forget that God has made a promise. You, You don't even have to look at this world. You can look at yourself. You can see all your faults and all your failures and all your falls and all your sins, and you can think, I can never, I can never add up. Until you come back and remember that you were born again, not by perishable seed, but by the imperishable seed. It never dies. Peter wants his readers to understand that the word by which they were born again is the word of the living God. You may be an exile in this world. You may be living as a pilgrim in this world. You may be scattered and suffering right now. You may face opposition all around you and even from within. The world mocks you, your own flesh mocks you as you look intimidating, it looks intimidatingly impressive so much so that you want to give up hope and maybe even stop with the whole family likeness thing. Maybe just give up on bearing this kind of love for one another. But listen, my friends, it is the word of God which is the cause of your new birth, the word of God which has brought you into the family of God. And this word is the living and abiding, it is eternal. What word? It is the gospel. This is the gospel which was preached to you. The gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ which you heard and you obeyed. You submitted to. You repented. You believed. Not perfectly in all those things. But listen, 
Your salvation is not up to the quality of your faith, but to the object of your faith, who is Christ the Lord. And that's your hope. And that's what causes you to love, to move toward one another, even though it might seem like it's in vain. (sighs) But you have the eternal, living, abiding word of God. God. You might be saying, man, how do I do that? How do I get that? How do I, how do I, mag- okay, I, I understand that I've been born again. I've been capacitated, freed from my old sinful nature. How do I stoke that? Well, that's what he talks about in the next chapter when he says, so, so lay aside malice. You see, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you don't have to fight sin. It doesn't mean that you don't have to to, to turn away from those sinful... There are hurdles that keep you from magnifying, from reaching this kind of love for one another. So lay it aside. And instead of, instead of that, lay those aside and long for the Word of God. The very Word that calls you to be born again in the first place is going to be the strength for you to live a life of love, of moving toward one another. Are you a member of the family of God? How will you be remembered? Babe Ruth hit, what was it, 741 home runs. As he came to the end of his career, he was aging. He wasn't very agile anymore. He was playing for the Boston Braves. That's one of the problems playing for a team from Boston. But he was playing for the Boston Braves and... They were playing the Cincinnati Reds, and that day, his errors led to, directly led to, to the Reds scoring five runs. And you couldn't believe it. The stadium was filled that day with people who were booing and complaining about the babe. Booing him. And as the last out was, was recorded, he's walking off the field, and they're just hurling down these insults and this mocking and, against the babe. But a little boy was there that day and he jumped over the side with tears in his eyes and he ran to his childhood hero, the babe, and he wrapped his arms around his legs. And Babe Ruth bent down that day and picked up the little boy and gave him a hug in front of all the people and then put him down and patted him on his head and walked away. And that day, that audience, something changed in that audience because no longer do they look at an aging baseball player who was outside of his prime They looked at a man who was a hero for another reason. He was remembered for that, not just because of his great play. (laughs) How, How will you be remembered? How will this church be remembered as we testify to the goodness and love of the Lord Jesus Christ? How will this church, how will you be remembered by this world? Yeah, the world will hurl insults at you and mock you and disparage you and revile you. But I tell you, when they see, when this world sees this kind of love, they have nothing. (laughs) Just their own shame, which Peter talks about later, doesn't he? How will our church be remembered? You see this, this command? Love one another earnestly. This, this capacity, when you, when you turn to the gospel, amazingly, 
And your past sins, the stain of your past sin is just purged, purified. And you're called into the priesthood to serve God. What's the cause of this? Because in the grace of God, through the imperishable, abiding, living word, you not only have new life, but you have a new father whose image you show, whose image you display. We have that privilege. What about it, young people? Particularly teenagers amongst us today. I, I hear about little spats that you guys have with one another. Little rumors. I, I hear about them because I, I, I was one once. I wasn't a little spat, but well, anyway, I hear about them because I was one. Little rumors, all the kind of stuff. And let me tell you, if you have been born again, if you have been brought into the family of God, you have a new father. You bear the image of your son. You ought to ask yourself if it's acceptable just because you're young and immature to act that way. What about you? You, you who are so riddled with your own schedule and your own things that you can't ever take time for others. Just got to be doing your own thing. Does your new life, does your, does your, this, this new capacity that you've been given, does that fit with only ever having time for yourself and your own desires? What about those of you who rarely move towards others, but you're waiting on them to move toward you? You, you blame it on you being an introvert, I know. I'm an introvert, I can't do that. Okay. But just ask yourself if that's consistent with this text. I could say, I have seen over the years and praise the Lord for what God has done amongst this church and in your hearts. I have seen people holding their attitudes in check, sometimes not always as well as we should, with being humble and, and grateful toward one another keeping your actions in line with, with the gospel. Ask yourself questions like, how would someone who has been sovereignly set free from a past stained with sin so grievous that would demand the substituting sacrifice of the Son of God react toward being wronged? How would someone for whom the Lord Jesus Christ willingly freed, uh, willingly faced the wrath of God, which should have been theirs, how would somebody like that, sacrifice for and serve someone else for whom Christ has been freely offered. That's, that's keeping your actions, your attitude in check with the gospel. He's calling us. You, you really have an opportunity to, to hear and obey today. Very clear. To set your life on cherishing one another such that you move toward each other in a way to seek their highest good even if it costs you. Consider how you'll do that. Let's pray. Father,